Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to the Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Welcome to the Author's Corner. I'm your host, Robin Colucci, and today I have with me the amazing Patty Block. Patty founded the Block Group in 2006 to empower women business owners who are experts in their fields. As their trusted advisor, she brings a unique perspective, having experienced and solved many of the same complex issues that women face as leaders, moms, daughters, and sisters. Patty tells me that 62% of women business owners rely on their businesses for their primary income, yet 88% of those businesses generate less than $100,000 in annual revenue. Now, having seen the same struggles time and again, Patty decided to address this issue by teaching women how to shift their mindset and build their confidence to generate more revenue with less stress by reimagining pricing and selling. Patty is a firm believer that when women earn more, everyone benefits, their staff, their families, and their community. Clients of Patty's often refer to her as their business therapist and secret weapon. And by establishing long-term relationships and serving as a strategic sounding board for her clients, they experience direct benefits to create real and lasting change, turning roadblocks into building blocks. And I've invited Patty to talk with us today specifically about this hurdle that so many women business owners face around being able to generate substantial income to support themselves and often to support themselves and their families. And as somebody who I personally was a single mom who received very little support (laughs) and was raising my two children and depending on my business for my primary income. And I remember those early years being very lean and challenging. I can remember one time in the grocery store with, with my kids and I was calculating in my mind what I was spending as I put stuff in the cart because I couldn't go over $80 or else I would, you know, pretty much wipe out my checking account. Right. And so I understand how hard it can be. And the big shift for me occurred also when I reimagined my pricing and when I reimagined sales. That is when I went from just barely eking out $40,000 gross a year in my business to getting into the multiple six figures. And so I have a special connection to the importance of making this this shift. And it is my deep hope and desire that some of our listeners, especially our moms, will get some great nuggets. You know, if, 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 if there's listeners out there and you're struggling at all with growing your business, getting that substantial income that, that allows you to live the life that you want, I really hope that this episode will be of great use to you. So enjoy. Patty, welcome to the Author's Corner. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm so excited to have you. You know, as you know, we've we've talked about the topic we're going to cover today a little bit on the side, and I just think it's such an important topic and clearly not something that's written about or talked about a whole lot, which is wage gap for women who are self-employed, for women business owners. You know, we hear we hear about it so much with in the corporate world and you know, smashing the glass ceiling. This is so interesting to me because it seems more like a self-imposed ceiling. So I'd love for you to, gosh, I'm just so excited to dive right in, but let's, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to calm myself down. Let's go back a little bit and share with our listeners what really triggered your interest even in, in examining this particular issue. It's interesting. I've had my company since 2006 and I've observed with many different companies, and I work only with women business owners, and typically they're experts in their fields. So they're 
highly educated, really um, have put a lot of energy into building their careers. Often they've come out of corporate and started companies. And so these companies have been in business maybe two to 10 years. And I started seeing patterns. The more I was working with women business owners, the more I listened and asked questions and did market research, the same things kept coming up over and over. One of which was using an hourly billing model because that's what they learned, especially if they came out of corporate. And because I work with a lot in financial services or professional services, that is how they're trained is everything is done on an hourly billing model. And I really object to that because it's so transactional. And yet they're all performing transformational services and helping their clients in these really valuable ways, but that isn't really being acknowledged. So that was my first awareness was many years ago, starting to see these patterns, hearing the same things over and over. And you're right to your point, It's very self-limiting. No one else is imposing their structure or their rules on us as women business owners. So we're doing that to ourselves. And often I noticed there were several reasons for that. One is comfort. Mm. So we default to this is where I'm most comfortable and I don't know how to change it. And it seems like a lot of work to try and figure it out. So that's the first piece. And the other piece is they want to avoid conflict. Ah, right. And sometimes change feels like conflict. Yeah. And they're afraid that people will push back or they'll lose clients or so there's a lot of fear underneath that. Now, do you think, I'm wondering how much of this is also just conditioned, right? Of like how, how girls are raised, how women are kind of taught to I don't know. How would you put it? Because it, to me, it, it smells a little bit like there's a socialization aspect to this. I think so, too. And I know that's how I was raised in a rather chauvinistic household where my dad was the boss and everybody deferred to him. And he made it very clear that my brothers were expected to be ambitious and to have you know, be highly educated and to have great careers and be breadwinners. And the girls were expected to get married and have kids. And it's fine if we got our education and it's fine if we had a career. But the messaging was very specific. And now I will say that on the one hand, that takes some pressure off us. Mm. My brothers have always felt a lot of pressure to meet my dad's expectations Whereas I had different pressures and because it was very clear that I was not expected to have a career and to build or to build a company or whatever my path has been, I then felt somewhat rebellious. Right. <laughs> uh, well, let me show you <laughs> how this is going to work. Now, I did get married. I did have kids and I built companies. There you go. (laughs) And am the breadwinner in my family. And I had a unique circumstance in that I was 34 years old, had three little kids and a surprise divorce. So it quickly became clear to me I was on my own. And I had built a company as a political consultant and a lobbyist, but that required a lot of travel. Mm -hmm. And I realized I needed to be home to stabilize my family. My youngest wasn't even two at that time. So I closed my business after eight years. I grieved over that. And I took a job because I needed health insurance and I needed to stop traveling. And that actually was a great opportunity. I went to an international school and I became director of development and then director of operations. So then when I started this company in 2006, my goal was to bring that experience in finance and operations to the small business market. So to your question, yes, I think especially in Western culture, we are raised as girls, as women with different expectations and probably different expectations of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was, um, I have to share two things occurred to me when I was listening to you. One was when you were talking about your rebellious (laughs) desire to start a 
to start your own business was, I don't know who, I don't remember who said it, but I, this quote that I love, which is well-behaved women rarely make history. <laughs> that occurred to me, but also I was, um, oh shoot, I hope I don't lose this point because you were, oh yes, you were talking about how you had the surprise divorce and so, and you had these three little kids and so you couldn't travel and you had to fold that business and take a job. And it immediately made me think of the phenomenon that we've seen as a result of the pandemic, where more women have left the workplace. We have fewer women in the workplace now than we have since the 80s, since the 1980s. And that's because so many women, even in dual parent households, you know, for some reason, it, <laughs> like the women are the ones who had to or you know who chose but probably under a great deal of external pressures to homeschool you know i mean obviously now now all of a sudden when you were able to send children to school they're not going to school so it's fallen upon the women so much to do the homeschooling absolutely and i hear that very frequently i see it i can't imagine how i would have managed under those circumstances I admire the women who are doing it now so much. And I have several clients who are struggling with that exact issue. They're running a company, it's growing, they're doing great, and they're juggling the homeschooling and working from home and all of the, the complications that come with that. So it has been a very hectic time for a lot of families. There are also a lot of women starting companies because they're leaving the workforce and they want a more flexible schedule. Which is definitely a benefit of being a self-employed woman. So let's talk a little bit about some of the limiting beliefs that prevent women from charging what their services are worth. I mean, you know, I personally, I actually avoid the phrase charge what you're worth because that's not possible because you are priceless, <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> but charging what the service is worth and this and what you were alluding to this transformational value, right? Not not trading dollars for hours. But before we get into the solution, which I definitely want to make sure we get to today, what are some of the key limiting beliefs that you see come up for women when you're talking with them about their rates and their rate structures? I know you, you, you touched on a few, but can you just give us a little bit more insight into, you know, what is the story that they're telling themselves um, in their minds? And, you know, what are, what are the specific things they're afraid are going to happen? Sure. They actually start to command what they, what they deserve. Right. So first, to speak to your point about what you're worth, I never use that term for exactly the reason you mentioned, because then it conflates your self-esteem and what you're charging. Mm. And to me, that is definitely, it's not only self-limiting, it's self-deprecating. Mm. And I'm based in Houston, Texas, and we have a saying here in Texas, it's not bragging if it's true. <laughs> that should be Texas's state motto. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So because of that, that's one of the limiting beliefs is that we as women, we think we're bragging and it feels terrible and we feel embarrassed and self-conscious. So that's one of the biggest issues is we think we're bragging or we sound arrogant or we don't so want to like talk about ourselves. So when we're talking about, when we're actually explaining the value that's present, we feel, you're saying women tend to feel like they're bragging versus showing the client the opportunity. Women, a lot of women you're working with are hearing that as like, Correct. I'm just having an ego fest, which is totally. Yes, there's that. But also I had one person ask me, am I putting a price on my head? Is that really what I'm doing by focusing on my increasing or improving my pricing? And I said, no, it isn't. For the same reason, we don't talk about what you're worth, because it's not about you as a person and it's not about your self-esteem. It's about building value in the mind of your ideal buyer. That is a very, very different concept 
than charging, quote, what you're worth. And so those self-limiting beliefs start with, if I'm talking about myself or my education, or I have a client who has a Harvard MBA, and she doesn't talk about it <laughs> because it feels like bragging. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's what happens is we talk about our team. We talk about our service. We talk about how we can help this person who's come to us, but we don't talk about ourselves and we don't talk about our accomplishments, mm-hmm. how we helped other clients, what kind of results we get because it feels like bragging. So that's one of the biggest issues, but the other is fear. And that is, well, there's a false belief that they are charging, quote, what the market will bear. (laughs) And what I help them understand is there's no such thing. Right. (laughs) It's kind of like charging what you're worth. There's no such thing. (laughs) (laughs) And yet we keep worrying about these concepts. And they're not real. So it's like that big, scary monster under your bed at night. It's not real, but you still feel scared. And that's what's happening here, too. So because there's fear under that, they don't want to deal with changing their price. So when I did my market research to find out what issues were the biggest challenges for women business owners, pricing never came up. No one ever answered with pricing. So interesting. So say more about that. That's very interesting. What what were the problems that they were aware of? What they talked about were problems with managing their staff or hiring or finding the right people. That was always a top concern. And the other top concern was juggling Mm -hmm. the number of things and the competing priorities that we have to deal with as women business owners, especially family and not just children, but parents. Right. <laughs> right. And and often we are the sandwich generation and we're helping our parents. I know I am. And I have three young adult kids and I'm always helping them as well. And so there are all kinds of things that we have to prioritize. And in addition to that, our businesses, all the companies I work with, their businesses are growing. And so they have those challenges of finding the right people, hiring, managing, dealing with technology, they don't have time to research and figure out the right CRM and migrate their data, right? So I help them do that research and make those decisions and migrate their data and all of the operational pieces to managing their business. So that was the other big challenge was I'm juggling a million things and I'm feeling burned out or I feel like my company's running me. Right. And I'm not sure how to solve that dilemma. So those were the things that were top of mind when I did the market research. I remember something from a previous conversation we had that I think one of the questions you asked them, and correct me if I'm wrong, was like, if you got an infusion of cash, like $100,000 or something like that into your business, how would you, and how would you spend that? Or how, how would you utilize that? Exactly. Um, right. Can you share with our listeners a little bit? Because I thought this was fascinating. Yes. So I did ask that question. And the funny thing is, when I originally drafted the question, it was if you had an extra $250,000. Okay. I way undershot that. No, actually, I changed it, Robin, because I asked one or two people that question and they couldn't answer it because that was such an immense amount of money in their mind Hmm. that they, they thought that wasn't possible. So they couldn't answer the question. So I changed it to 100,000. Then the answers that I got were, I would give all my staff a raise. I would hire two more people. I would have an annual retreat for my staff. And they started listing all these things of how they would support others. And then I would ask them, do you pay yourself last at the end of the month or do you pay yourself first? And universally, women pay ourselves last. We pay everyone else first, all our vendors, all our staff. We make sure everything's taken care of. And then if there's anything left over, we pay ourselves. So that's the first piece of that. And the second piece is I asked if they would give themselves a raise. And they said, no, I would hire more people. And one of the the other patterns that I've seen over the years 
is as women, we often think we're understaffed. And when I go in and look at the productivity and who's actually doing what inside the company, I think they're overstaffed. Mm. And I'm wondering what certain people are doing all day. So it's, again, it's that comfort of, as women, we often like to have a community. We like to have people around us. And of course, we want to delegate the work because we can't handle everything. So when I ask the question of, if you had an extra $100,000, what would you do with it? It was clear that the responses were, I would support others. Yes. And helping them shift their thinking is such an important mission for me because it is so limiting. And there are so many ways that you can generate more revenue with less stress, which is now my mantra and how I teach that it's not just your pricing. It starts with pricing because that's the linchpin for everything in a service company. Absolutely. But in addition to your pricing, if you treat sales, if you don't think of it as, as a four-letter word, yeah, right? Sell is not a four-letter word. And if you understand that you're taking your buyer on a journey and that at the end of that journey, your buyer will be ready to buy. You don't have to convince anyone of anything. Yeah, exactly. And it's more like matchmaking. So shifting the mindset and helping women understand this differently and approach it differently, it's a process and it takes time and practice. Mm-hmm. But that is what I teach. And we see incredible results. I bet. I bet. Because that is such a huge mindset shift when you realize I had, I had a wonderful mentor who used a, a, a phrase that I've reminded myself of, I don't even know how many times, and it is sales isn't something you do to someone. It's something you do for them. And it's so true, right? Because this person is coming to you in some sort of pain because they need a solution. And if you have a great solution, It's your responsibility to communicate, first of all, to listen to them and see, is this an appropriate solution? And if it is, to communicate your solution and to really charge a price that supports you as well as them. Exactly. Because you can't deliver your best if you're stressed and broke and worrying about how you're going to pay your team and not even thinking about paying yourself. I mean, that's how are you how much help can you really be to somebody yes and the other thing i would add to that is uh, sometimes i have uh, here's the other limiting belief that i'll mention thinking that you're greedy if you charge more and i have it, i also saw that in my market research that a lot of women when we drilled down into how they felt about their pricing or what they were charging or how they communicated that they would often say, you know, sometimes I just feel greedy. I'm very happy with what I have and what I'm doing and everything is fine. And I would hear that over. That's a good one. (laughs) I would hear it over and over. I still hear it. Oh, it's fine. fine. (laughs) My pricing is fine. fine. I'm fine. My pricing is fine. Everything's fine. Yeah, exactly. And it is fine if that's all you want. And if you're okay with that limitation. And if you are, more power to you. But one of the things that happens when you start generating more revenue is it empowers you. It empowers you as a person, as a woman, as a business owner, as a manager. Mm -hmm. And when you take that, and in fact, that is exactly what happens with all the people that I've taught to improve their pricing, improve their sales efforts that they start bringing in so much more revenue and then they can reprioritize what they want to do and how they want to do it and how they want to communicate their message. So it really buys you power Mm -hmm. and it's the power to choose, the power to have choices and freedom and flexibility. Yeah. So that's really what comes of it. And it's not about being greedy. You know, what I've found is that I've raised my prices many times. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're on the higher end of the world of book consulting or coaching. But, you know, what I have found is that charging, you know, one of the clearly, 
one of the key values of women business owners is to support others and help create opportunities for others. But, and, and I agree with that. But what I have found is that raising my prices has enabled me to provide better opportunities to more people, like a lot better. Yes. Where, you know, I've got multiple people working with me on my team who are earning what I was earning on a yearly basis just a few years ago. <laughs> right? right. And, but they're 30 years younger than I am. <laughs> so, you know, I find that is fulfilling, right? To be able to not just provide people some work to do, but my goal is to make sure, you know, is to get everyone on my team to the level where everybody has a, a nice living wage that they can actually enjoy their life with. Exactly. And the real importance of that is that when women earn more, we share that wealth, we support others, and it's coming back into our communities. We're supporting our families, we're supporting our, in terms of philanthropy, and what we give back to our communities. And it's not to say that men don't do that, but women have that spark of building our communities and supporting that. So that's what happens when women earn more, when they bring in more revenue in their business. It gives you choices and that power to then impact your community in a whole new way. I'm so glad you shared that because something that I was hearing as like a the essence that was coming across in all these points of view that these women, that, that, that women business owners who struggle with their rates are having. And I kept thinking that, you know, this is the mother, right? This is what the mother does, right? Like, oh, there's not enough food for all of us. So I'm going to let my children eat first and then I'll eat what's left. It's even appropriate for a mother. Right. But it's that energy. It's that desire to take care of that's a beautiful part of feminine energy. But there is this point, right, where it, these, these people aren't actually your children. <laughs> yes. When I was growing up, there was kind of a standard thing in my household that mom always ate the broken cookies. Everybody else got the whole cookie. Oh, my God. And mom would eat the ones that were broken. And that philosophy ties into what you're saying. If there's not enough food, then mom makes sure that all her kids are fed first. And, and, while, and actually, and probably her husband too. Yes. You know, if we really look at the, the traditional model, right? Dad yes. gets the big pork chop. So some of this is about taking back your power, mm -hmm. about feeling empowered, not feeling afraid anymore. And what women are often afraid of, even if they feel brave enough and ready to change their pricing and their sales efforts, it's the communication piece. Mm. It's how do I talk about this? How do I communicate it in a way that doesn't sound like I'm bragging, that doesn't feel like I'm greedy, that doesn't scare people off because my prices are, quote, too high. I don't want to lose clients. I don't want to take a chance that I won't attract clients. And the truth is, as women, we believe that every buyer who comes to us is an ideal buyer. And if, they're, <laughs> if, if we determine they're not an ideal buyer, we believe we can turn them into one. Oh, this is, so this is the old dating, dysfunctional dating. <laughs> it really is. Not the ideal boyfriend. I can fix him and make him an ideal boyfriend. So now we've carry that over to clients. Correct. Interesting. So, okay. so when we talk about building value in the mind of your ideal buyer, that's where it gets really tricky. Because if you believe everyone who comes to you is an ideal buyer, and you are struggling to help them understand the value that you bring, the real value, then you're working on a false premise. Right. Because they're not an ideal buyer. No, if they can't see the value, they're definitely not. <laughs> right. But there are lots of reasons they might not be an ideal buyer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you have to be able to look at that very honestly. So I teach a process that helps you look at that, pro that whole process very honestly. And in addition, 
how you then communicate. Yeah. yeah. And how you answer questions that may catch you off guard mm -hmm. or make you feel uncomfortable. So there's a whole piece where communication is keeping women stuck because, yeah, instead of communicating, they're staying quiet. And, and just even back to the ideal buyer thing, I think that even just energetically, like if you if you're going into every conversation thinking, you know, this this is going to be the great client, you know, and you don't actually you haven't actually talked to them, you're going to convey a, a more desperate, needy energy versus going into the conversation with like a more like a curiosity, right? Like, oh, how can I help this person get to another place of clarity? Yes. You know, and, and if the clarity is you should hire me, cool. If the clarity is you should not hire me, also cool, right? Because <laughs> the goal yeah. isn't to get the client, you know, and I found for me making that distinction really took a lot of those fears that you're talking about just off the table, because then it wasn't just about like, I have to get this person. It was like, well, is this somebody I can help that I want to help? And if, if so, then I offer them something. If not, I don't, but I try to find something else for them to try, you know, but yes, I think, I think exactly. it is a, like that non-attachment. It's like, it seems like there's a, what I'm getting from what you're sharing is that there's a strong sense of like, the attachment to an outcome. Definitely. Well, first there's hope. Mm. So we hope that this turns into a client. And then there's that idea of if they're not ideal, I can turn them into an ideal. So then it becomes not only hope in them, but hope in ourselves. And then it becomes, I want the revenue. This would be a great client. I know I can do the work. I know I can deliver and I want the revenue. So those three things conspire to create situations where we wish we could fire a client. <laughs> yeah, you're like, oh, there's not enough money in the world for me to sign this person up again. So, and especially, and especially, Robin, if you haven't fixed your pricing first, now you're essentially giving away your services. Right. Exactly. And and it's costing you so much energetically that you can't even put a number on that. Exactly. Yeah. So, what do you? How do you, I mean, without giving all your secrets away, because I know, but I mean, I'm just curious when you, I love this, you know, you're saying that there's these different layers of hope and then the revenue. So, because this is, this has got to be plugged into the same thing that has them probably want to avoid sales conversations. And so it's like a, a vicious cycle, right? Because if you don't have enough conversations, then you do need to close every sale, right? Or you're, you can't pay your team, apparently. <laughs> yes, right. right. Yeah. I mean, not even without getting into too much of the how, but like, what is the, the different way of thinking about it that you, that you advise women to view it? I, I would imagine there's some element of just even a different perspective. Yes. So it's several different pieces. One is really understanding your relationship with money. So that's the thing we start with. I have a program called Value Driven Pricing. We start with your relationship with money. And we then drill down into what is your current mindset and what do you want it to be? And then how do you change it? And I give tools and strategies for how you can actually shift your mindset. So it's one thing to hear what I'm saying and think, well, that really makes sense. Or, oh, my God, I'm doing that. Right? right. That's me. Right. <laughs> exactly. So it's one thing to hear that. It's another thing to figure out how to change it. Mm -hmm. And that means changing not only the way you're thinking, but your habits. Absolutely. And getting outside your comfort zone to be brave enough to take these steps. And that's really how I view the people that I work with is my clients are very brave and they're ready and they're willing to learn new things and try new things. So that's the first piece of it is your relationship with money and your mindset. And then we start looking at, again, this very different way of looking at who is your ideal buyer? What makes them an ideal buyer? Not client. That's different. Mm. And I really make oh, that distinction. That's interesting. Yes, because 
when we think of them as, and you know, all the marketing companies talk about your ideal client and your avatar and all of these terms that they use. And the problem I have with that is that it ties into the hope, which can work against us. Mm-hmm. So if you have somebody who comes to you and you're thinking of them as an ideal client, then you're really not going to be paying attention to their buying journey. Mm, interesting. You're going to be trying to figure out in your mind how you're going to provide the service and what you're going to charge. And as long as you're focused on that, you're not really listening to your buyer. Mm. So I make that distinction to say, look for an ideal buyer. Let's make sure we understand who you're looking for, where you're going to find them. There's a price point for every market and every service. Mm -hmm. And so you made the comment that you're probably at the higher end in your industry, Mm -hmm. but there's a price point for that buyer. And then the key becomes going to find your buyer, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And that is what I teach. So So if Right. And so my clients, because they're experts in their fields, they don't want 5,000 clients. They want 50 clients or five clients. I was going to say. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And you're so right. Because like when I got clear on, like really clear on who is actually the most appropriate client, I was able to cut out 80% of the networking I was doing because it just was not in the right look. It wasn't in the right places. Correct. It was just a complete waste of time. It, for, you Correct. know, I mean, meeting nice people is always fun, but that's not that's not business development time. That's wasted business development time. That's correct. And on top of that, now we're addressing the juggling and competing priorities problem. There you go. Mm-hmm. Because if you're not going to fifty networking events a month, then you can focus your energy in a different way, totally. and you become much more productive and. By productive, I mean making money. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is what keeps the lights on. Correct. And yeah. allows you to make choices and have community impact. Absolutely. Absolutely. And frankly, I mean, I was somebody who didn't, like, I didn't enjoy sales. I didn't enjoy that moment when they finally say, so, what, you know, what's the, what's it going to cost me? You know, and, you know, I didn't enjoyed that part, especially I can really relate to what you're saying, but I have to say, like, once you work, you know, once you work through it, really, because it's, there's lots of scary moments, (laughs) but I love doing sales. It's like one of my favorite things to do because helping someone who I'm, I know I can really help and who's going to change the world with their book and I get to help them get there. It's so fun. I feel the same way. You know, I'm sure you do, right? Yes. Because you can see what's on the other side for them. And it's just fun to have that conversation, to explore it together and see if this is something we want to do together. That's right. And going back to what I said earlier, it's more like matchmaking. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that analogy, by the way. That's brilliant. It's more like Finding, first of all, finding the ideal buyer, having those conversations in a structured way so that you're taking them on this journey and you're very focused. I often advise my clients, you have to separate out sales from service. And what happens is (laughs) we get so focused on how are we going to provide the service and what are we going to charge that we abandon are buyers and they're less likely to buy. Yeah. So having that structure and that process is super important. And when you, once you learn it and you practice it, it becomes second nature. It's actually perfect for women because we love building relationships. Yes. And that's the method that I teach is relationship building in the buying process. Yeah. And you have to like your, buyer should be doing most of the talking. Correct. So if you're not asking a lot of questions and it's just all about, and interestingly, guess what it sounds like when it's like, oh, and we do this service and we offer you this and we give you this. That sounds like bragging actually, (laughs) right? 
So it's really when you show that you're curious about the buyer's experience and what they're exactly looking for and, you know, what stopped them in the past and, you know, these kinds of questions, then they get, oh, this person's interested in me. Yes. And then when you have a solution, you can really tailor what you share. They don't have to know everything about your business, right? You can tailor what you share based on what they told you. Right. It's just fun. I agree. Great. So, yeah. So tell me, give, give us a, tell us a great success story of, of what, one of, I'm sure that one of many, I'm sure that you have of a woman who came to you, who was struggling with this and you know, what happened? <laughs> so I have a couple, one in particular, it's one of my favorite stories because she had been in business for such a long time. And this is someone, her father had started the company then he passed away and she took over. And so the company had been around for over 30 years and was very, very successful. And I had been working with her for about three years. And I had been talking about raising prices, structuring it differently, communicating it differently. But she was very, very hesitant for all the reasons we've talked about. She had a lot of fear and and was very concerned, especially that she might lose clients. Well, one thing that's really important to know is regardless of what you decide to do with your pricing, you can leave your current clients alone. Right. Yes. You can keep them exactly as they are with the structure they have and the pricing they have. Yep. Or you can grandfather them, what I like to call grandmothering. Yes. Yep. So that's exactly what she chose to do after we finally talked it through. And the turning point for her was that I had developed a cash flow analysis for the next year. This was the end of a year. We were doing it for the next year. And I showed her that if we assumed everything status quo, which is pretty much what it would be, that she would have a break-even year. And she had a team of six people. And she was so shocked. She turned to me and said, we are working way too hard not to have profit. Yeah, no kidding. I said, I agree with you completely. <laughs> and the simplest quickest, most seamless way is to change your pricing. Mm -hmm. So we worked through that. We built her pricing model. She decided to grandmother her current clients and give them six months notice, at which point the increase would go into account, into place. And she not only lost no clients, her sales skyrocketed because partially because she was communicating so much better and focusing on her ideal buyer. Right. And she also found that as she was communicating this, she was getting more referrals. So all of that, the next year where we had developed that cash flow analysis, it was her biggest revenue year in business in over 30 years. Wonderful. And so then Two years later, when I suggested we raise prices again, there was no hesitation. There was no fear <laughs> because she had such a great experience with that. Yeah, so true. So, And honestly, I found that as our pricing goes up, so does the quality of the clients and their level of commitment. Yes, I think that's true. And their sophistication. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So when you're working with a... <laughs> Yes. And they do understand value. And when you're working with a more sophisticated client, not only do they value you more because they understand this whole dynamic, but also they have friends. Yes. They have colleagues. And then those referrals are better quality as well. And I also find like success begets success, right? So people who are in a position where they're both willing and able to pay the higher rates. Well, generally what I find is these people value excellence and they're because they de they they provide excellence in what in their work. And so it's it's important to them and they demonstrate that in their own work every day and they and you know the, the truth is there's just not a lot of excellence out there. You know, so if you're willing to be excellent in your providing your services, they're grateful to pay you for your excellence that, that you're providing because it takes so much pressure off of them. Correct. Because they don't have to be behind you with the broom cleaning up your half-assed job. That's right. 
And you're also saving them so much time and energy. Right. So, and that's true when my clients change their pricing or we streamline their operations or whatever we're working on, that they really don't want to take the time, energy, and frustration of figuring it out themselves. Mm -hmm. So I can streamline that for them and teach them how to do it. And that's the second story I wanted to share that one of the the uh, business owners in my pilot program for value-driven pricing had a really interesting scenario and she owns a PR company that has been in business about 10 years. It's very successful. She's got a team of people and the challenge for her has really been identifying the red flags when it's not an ideal buyer. Mm. And again, that hope that I can turn this person into an ideal buyer. <laughs> and so she realized that she had clients that weren't, they weren't working well together. Mm-hmm. And she had underpriced her services because often we undervalue ourselves and we underprice. So because of that, she wasn't being profitable with those companies. Mm-hmm. And when we worked on her first proposal as she was taking the program, it was really interesting because although she had that fear, all the fears we've talked about, she was willing to talk about that. And that's really that first step is the awareness mm-hmm. and being willing to talk about it and kind of face your monster. Mm-hmm. Once she had done that, she was pricing a proposal for someone who had contacted her and wanted the work done in an extremely short period of time. Ah. And the way I teach them to build their pricing model and to scope the work is that you add in for urgency, Mm. for special requests, for things that you know the buyer values because they've told you it's important to them. And that means you can charge more for that because they value it so much. And that's a really good example of what I mean by building value in the mind of your ideal buyer. Mm -hmm. Take what they already value and then build on that. So if someone says they need it in 30 days, there's a premium for that. Absolutely. And you're so right, because the thing I hear over and over and over again with my clients is their biggest challenge and their biggest obstacle is time. Yes. So And that's true for most of us. Right. And they're willing to pay to buy their time back. Exactly. Yeah. So it was interesting. We uh, originally, when I looked at her proposal and I said, this is way too low. And there's so many things I think you're not factoring in here. I think you should triple it. And of course, she was horrified by that. (laughs) And what we did is in steps, I was able to help her understand how she could double it then how she could bring it up a little bit more, where the value was, and how to calculate that. Mm-hmm. So Brilliant. I suggested that she go to a to a specific number, and she couldn't quite get there. So she went $5,000 less. She gave the proposal, and they didn't bat an eye. Right. <laughs> All they asked was, when could she start? Right. She's probably going, darn <laughs> Exactly. Because that's what I said is you could have charged more. Yeah. yeah. That's what that tells you. But that was a really good experience for her and a really good lesson. So now she, she doesn't have those fears and she's much more selective in who she's working with. And she is charging more appropriately, which changes everything in her company. Totally. And, you know, there is such a thing as not charging enough that it, it makes some potential clients and pro- potentially your best clients, potential clients or buyers, your best buy- potential buyers, think that you're probably not, you probably don't have the skill level that they need. If you, know, if you charge too low, they're yes. going to assume that you're new <laughs> or that you don't really know what you're doing. That could be. And especially for some of the companies that I work with that have been in business for three years, they have some of those insecurities of, I haven't proven myself yet. Mm. And so I need to do more things for less money so I get the experience and then I can start charging more. And 
what I help them understand is that is a very self-deprecating and a flawed way of thinking that is very, very limiting and is unnecessary. You have proved yourself. If you had a corporate career, if you owned a business, you have proved yourself a million times over. You don't need to keep doing that. Right. Oh, my gosh. You know, this has been so helpful. I can't even believe (laughs) that we've that we're almost at an hour. (laughs) How did that happen? So before I let you go, Patty, tell our listeners how they can find you. Because I'm positive there's a lot of women listening, you know, that maybe heard a little something that sounded vaguely familiar. I even heard something for myself that I, (laughs) I was like, oh yeah. I I should have written it down. I'll I'll remember when I re-listen to this. But how can our listeners find you? to get some more help and support in charging appropriately for their amazing work. You bet. So you can connect with me on LinkedIn and it's Patty Block, Patty with a Y. So connect with me on LinkedIn. I love meeting new people. And when you do, send me a little note that mentions that you heard this podcast and you're curious. And also you can contact me through my website, which is the Block Group, theblockgroup.net. Also, I have a quiz and I would love if your listeners wanted to take the quiz. What it does is reveal the roadblocks that you're experiencing to generating more revenue. And it's called myrevenueroadblocks.com. It's a free quiz and you can go and you'll get a report and it'll tell you what your score is telling you about what's in your way in terms of building revenue. Well, that sounds great. And I'm going to go take that quiz because we're doing well, but you can always do better. (laughs) So thank you so much for, for sharing that. And thank you so much for your presence. And also for our listeners to know those links that Patty shared with us will also be on the podcast episode on the blog for our podcast at at theauthorscorner.com. Be sure if you didn't get a chance to write it down, you can just go there and you'll be able to find the links there. So that's great. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time.